Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 29th, 2023. Uh, this long, hot summer is coming to an end, but perhaps the long, hot summer of modernity is just beginning to heat up. We've done a number of shows, and I apologize for that rather crude metaphor. Um, done a number of shows on the threat or perhaps the opportunity of synthetic biology uh, quite recently with Ted Anton, uh, Programmable Planet, uh, the synthetic biology revolution. I have to admit, I wasn't particularly convinced by his optimism. Um, uh, Amy Webb also has a new book out on synthetic biology. Uh, meanwhile, of course, the other thing that is preoccupying tech writers is the threat or perhaps the opportunity of AI. We've done many, many shows, including with Margaret Mitchell, who got fired, one of her, I think, to her credit, she got fired at uh, Google for warning about unethical AI with Gary Marcus, my old friend. He's been on the show many times. He's become one of the leading critics of generative AI and open AI. Even with the great English writer Jeanette Winterson, who, as it happens, is actually more optimistic about um, the opportunities of AI uh, than one would expect. We haven't done anything, though, on how synthetic biology and AI are coming together in the so-called coming wave. My guest today, Mustafa Suleiman, uh, doesn't require much of an introduction. He's an iconic figure in Silicon Valley and indeed in London. He was the uh, co-founder of DeepMind, a very successful entrepreneur, worked with Google, now associated with a new AI company called Inflection. And the coming wave is out uh, next week, I think, in the US, uh, middle of the month in the UK. And it's already been included on the long list of the FT books of the year. So uh, already making a lot of waves, Mustafa, before the book comes out. Thanks very much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and talk about the ideas. It feels like now really is the the right time. Everything seems to be coming together at this moment. So, so it's a good time to be alive. Mustafa, coming together or perhaps falling apart? I mean, your book is not particularly optimistic. It's It's a warning about this dual crisis or perhaps opportunity of synthetic biology and AI, how are they connected in your mind? Yeah, I mean, the, the overriding trend um, that is not just common to synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, but is actually one that I think we see throughout the history of technologies, is that as technology gets more useful, it gets cheaper because everybody demands it. And we find more efficient um, and, you know, more effective ways of making things. And that is a trend that has stood the test of time from the invention of the hand axe to the discovery of fire to the arrival of steam and electricity, and now to these new technologies from microchips through to synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. And what I've tried to do in the book is consider that idea, first examine whether it is in fact true, and if it is, then think about what the consequences are for the future of the nation state and ultimately the future of our species if 
this new form of, of power radically proliferates over the next three or four decades. It's an ambitious book. Um, your bibliography includes books you don't normally show up in tech books written by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs like Benedict Sanderson's Imagined Community. What's your background? I know you, you dropped out of uh, Oxford University to become an entrepreneur. Uh, how did you go about writing this book? It's your first book. Were, were you attempting to bring together all your different interests? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been someone who thinks across a wide range of disciplines. That's always been second nature to me. I'm, I'm sort of very lucky in that sense that I'm quite good at um, teaching myself and I have, I have no problem reading. It's actually, you know, something that I have kept up since university and is a habit that enables me to relax. And so, you know, really, the writing process was actually remarkably straightforward. It was a collection of ideas that I've been assembling for many, many years. And my writing partner is one of my best friends from when we were at Oxford together. So we've been sort of co-developing the ideas. Um, that's Michael Basker for many, many years. And and also, you know, the, the first part of the book really focuses on the deep research, which I think is super fascinating and trying to understand, you know, the many, many examples where actually the tendency has been towards proliferation and the very few examples where there has been, you know, sort of limited containment and non-proliferation. And so, you know, I was really led by the stories and the anecdotes and the history, um, you know, which, which, which then kind of came together to form this overarching argument about the nature of technology. Some people think, uh, Mustafa, that the Cold War ended, although some people believe that we have a new one now with China. It's interesting that you choose these words, proliferation and containment. I know containment's an important word in the book. Of course, it was a word that was popularized by George Kennan, uh, describing the Soviet threat and the Soviet Union, the foundations of the first Cold War after the Second World War. Are there analogies between the coming wave, the coming threat of synthetic biology and AI and the Cold War? Well, I think to the extent that technology has always enabled states to serve their citizens better or to, you know, go about various kinds of military conquest or advance their nationhood in various ways. I mean, you know, I, I use the phrase in the book, homo technologicus. What that basically means is that we are nothing as a species, if not predestined to use tools. That is actually what differentiates us. And every tool, whether it's my the glasses that I'm wearing or my ability to pick up a club, um, enables, accelerates, enhances, amplifies, however you want to describe it, the human condition in various ways. And of course, our tribal form, our nation states, our race, our culture, and so on, um, is the the ultimate sort of beneficiary or the driver, both both the both the driver and the uh, you know, the product of that tool use in various ways. And so it's not surprising that, you know, geopolitical competition isn't just spurred on by um, these technologies. It's a fundamental motivator of these technologies. And, you know, I think there's a sort of a range of incentives, um, not just the the sort of political and military, but also the commercial incentives, you know, the desire to, you know, tackle hunger and healthcare and deal with a you know, a, a warming climate, there's all these 
fundamental drivers that lead to you know everybody wanting access as quickly as possible everybody wanting to experiment um you know in every which way you know and on the face of it that has been an incredible trajectory of progress over the last you know many many centuries um and so you know it's it's very hard to think about what a containment strategy looks like in that broader context of huge you know geopolitical incentives we start to see that now with the the new cold war that people are referring to with china you know where quite understandably um you know they want to get access to cutting edge um you know satellites weapons quantum computers synthetic biology you know um ai chips and of course you know just in the last year with the export controls the us has denied them access to you know the most advanced chips which is basically going to stop them from training frontier uh, large language models the the kind of cutting edge yeah, it's of interesting AI we have, um, we did a show uh, beijing rules which is another book that um is on the long list um uh, a book about the threat of what the author describes um as an authoritarian capitalism so all this stuff fits together we're all just sort of playing with all the pieces uh mustafa in terms of containment and synthetic biology and ai what exactly are we containing are we containing what are we supposed to be thinking about containing are we containing the technologies themselves or the companies like google or perhaps inflection your, your current startup that that own these technologies uh i'm sure you're familiar with the work of ian bremer old friend of mine he's been on the show several times he had a recent piece suggesting that in this new world the big tech companies need a seat at the table in this post nation state world are we containing the companies themselves or the technologies or, or can we not separate the two yeah so ian's a good friend of mine and uh, we, we actually co-authored that piece in foreign affairs um calling for the the techno prudential moment um a, a precautionary I, I apologize yeah of course yeah we we, we you know and, and i think it's it's interesting because this really is a different moment to uh, the arrival of past technologies. I mean, these these technologies are principally invented and driven by um, the private actors, uh, the private companies, but they're also widely available in open source. And so, you know, the absolute cutting edge is available today, at least in AI, to anybody in open source. Um, but it's sort of eighteen to two years, eighteen months to two years behind. That, that's a remarkable trajectory that something that could cost hundreds of millions of dollars one year could be available a couple of years later uh, entirely for free. And if that trajectory continues, then essentially what we have is more concentrated forms of power. Um, so that is, you know, a single individual has the ability to reach um, a much, much larger group. So it's asymmetric in that sense. But those those concentrated units of power um, are now widely spread, you know, just as my mobile phone is a concentrated unit of power because it has, you know, a million times more processing than it did 40 years ago, um, which enables me to stream content, record content, create content, and so on. That power to broadcast, which, which was delivered by the social media age, um, you know, has, has completely radically changed culture. And we'll see the same thing with AI. 
the new wave of AI will enable a power to take action, right? Um, which is a very distinct feature to previous technologies, the ability to do things in the world. You know, your AIs will speak to other AIs. They'll speak to humans. They'll speak to many large groups. They will learn to use APIs, uh, you know, online application programming interfaces, and they'll be able to make calls, you know, right into, you know, third-party data structures. And that, that is a, just a completely different quality of, of, of technology to what we've seen before. You talked about the social media age, Mustafa. Um, many historians, text historians, see the age of AI coming after the social media age. But are they connected? Uh, did a show with Michael Waldridge, who's the professor of computer science at Oxford. You may know him. I'm sure you know his work. Um, who suggests that the guardrails, the training wheels, so to speak, of of AI have been built on our social media content. What's the relationship between social media and the coming wave? Did it, does, has social media softened, them up, softened us up? Has it taken our eye off the ball? No, I mean, I think it, if anything, it's the reverse, right? I think the, the, the chaos of social media the, has made us all more alert and more concerned about the potential consequences for the AI wave, right? When we went into the, the social media age, there was a hyper-optimism. You know, technology companies were the darlings of the world. You know, they could do no wrong. They didn't need regulating. We, we, we bought into the idea that platforms are neutral. I mean, you know, like the idea that platforms are neutral now, looking back, just seems absurd, right? I mean, you know, ranking is moderation, and the, and the idea that like ranking, you know, the order in which you see a set of cards on Instagram or a set of search results on Google or Facebook, or whatever, you know, the, the idea that that wasn't influenced by either commercial needs or, you know, other kinds of judgment, you know, po policy and safety, trust and safety, you know, th that now seems to most people pretty obvious. And, you know, a, as a result, you know, this concern that actually outrage, which, you know, and, and, you know, sort of lies and misinformation, which spreads more easily because it's sort of dopamine-inducing and addictive. That that's become sort of common parlance, which is you know really a good thing. I mean, it's not you know in, entirely clear what scale it has. Actually, isn't very much you know peer-reviewed evidence that supports these cases. But we all have an intuition that they're serious risks, and so I think that we can use those insights to approach the next wave with you know more scrutiny. Um, you know, maybe even the precautionary principle, you know, approaching these things, knowing that they potential, they, they have huge potential to transform, you know, our world in very fundamental ways. Second part of the interview, I want to get to your fixes. I know you've got some very specific plans, a 10-step plan, in fact, for dealing with this coming wave. Uh, but but coming back to the, the AI issue and, and the notion of uh, so, uh, AI being trained on social media. Is there any truth to that, Mustafa? I mean, you're, you're one of the co-founders of Deep Minds. You now have an AI startup inflection. Uh, has this new wave of AI, uh, particularly the generative AI driven by uh, the open AI revolution, uh, has it learned to think and talk through our social media content? 
Well, not just from social media, but from everything. I mean, it, it, there are trillions of words that are included in the training corpuses of models like mine at Inflection and you know many other companies now and, and open source movements. Um, and you know, social media content is a small part of it. To be honest with you, it's a it's a very small part of it. Like anything that is available on the open web, um, you know, has been you know collected up in in this content. But that includes you know, all kinds of blogs and websites and and you know books, essays, you know many many you know sources. So I, I think that the other intuition that it's important that people grasp is that the interesting thing over the last couple of years is that the bigger these models get, the more controllable they are, and that's because they're essentially doing an all-to-all -all connection between all the words that they've been trained on across all the different you know, sources, right? That's a very crude way of putting it from a technical perspective. But just to give you an intuition, the more computation they have, the more nuance and subtlety and precision they can produce. And that's actually a very good thing when it comes to creating safe AIs and, you know, valuable AIs that actually serve the purposes that we're looking for. Um, two years ago, everybody's concern was, well, they're going to be toxic and biased and they're going to produce, you know, racist, homophobic, you know, sexist screeds will we'll, we'll be flooded with misinformation that is, you know, and we won't we won't know the ways in which we're being, you know, um, you know, tricked and the biases that are included in the model. That, that's turned out not to be the case, which I think it was actually a fairly predictable outcome. It's turned out to be the case that the bigger the models are the um, more precisely we can align them. You know, my own AI called Pi, which you can find at pi.ai, it's a personal intelligence, it's incredibly safe. It's very, very hard to get it to produce uh, any of these, these uh, you know, sort of toxic generations. And if you, um, you know, actually try any of the jailbreaks, the prompt hacks that have been so successful at tricking a lot of the other models like the open AI model and so on, they don't work on Pi, right? So we made technical safety our number one priority and it's sort of demonstrated that if you really focus on it, um, you know, you can produce a, a very distinct distinct experience. I would expect you uh, most of to say nothing else that your own particular AI is safe. Well, you should try it out. Just try, try it out. It out. Let me know if you... If yeah, you, well, we'll have you back. We'll, we'll back me on the show and specifically to talk about uh, inflection. <laughs> But uh, the subject of today's conversation is your new book, uh, The Coming Wave, Technology Power in the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, this convergence of AI and, um, and synthetic biology and the threats and opportunities of tech. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties Quarterly, an excellent uh, publication. I'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with uh, Mustafa Suleiman to talk specifically about how exactly we're going to contain all these new technologies and allow them to work for us rather than it working, uh, the, the, us working for them. So we'll be back in two seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, politics, opinion, Substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. 
And you can check out more libertiesjournal.com. We are back with um, Mustafa Solomon, a legendary technologist and now author, The Coming Wave, a book that's already been shortlisted for the financial, uh, long listed for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year out next week in the US and in middle of uh, September in the UK. Uh, so let's get concrete here, uh, Mustafa. You have a 10-step plan in the book for, quote-unquote, containing this, these new technologies. And one of the things that I think is striking about your argument is you're not falling back on regulation. Regulation may play a role, but you think regulation is old, it's tired, it's perhaps a little bit 20th century. Why can't we rely on regulation? Well, I think the argument is that regulation is not enough. So it's a, it's a first step. Um, and unfortunately, it won't come first. It will be the, um, you know, it will be a cultural pressure, social concerns, it will be movements, um, and ultimately, it will be the industry coming together to, you know, work on um, self-regulation. Um, now, all you believe of in that, self-regulation? You're, in, you're an insider? Are these companies really capable of self-regulating? They've always talked about it. It never really seems to come out in practice. Well, you know, there are precedents here. So the, um, you know, airline safety aviation, for example, emerged as a cross-industry collaboration mm. um, back in the 50s because they recognized that commercial flight um, was never going to become a widespread consumer, you know, experience unless it was really safe. And so there was a collective, you know, uh, sort of self-interest, if you like, Um and, you know, obviously that then became, you know, part of the official regulators and the FAA. But it is, I think, a, a, an exemplar case because, you know, you take a look at airline safety now, it's one of the safest modes of transport in the world. And yet on the face of it, it looks, you know, pretty scary being 40,000 feet in, the, in, in a tin tube. And I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of centralized oversight of the communication of failures and safety risks so that the black box recorder, you know, even if there's a minor incident provides information to the FAA, which then makes decision about whether to update standards or training practices um, and shares that information among all competitors. Right. So there is coordination across all of the competing industries. Yeah, and, and, and I buy that. And yesterday, another of the books on uh, Mustafa on the uh, the long list, the FT is five times faster by Simon Sharp about the politics, mostly of climate change. It seems as if the issue of climate change is the other extreme where governments haven't been able to get their hands around it and we can't trust private corporations are those the two bookends the airline industry and and climate yeah i think that's a pretty good framing i mean you know on on the flip side on climate you know it took us 10 years than we expected to reach an international agreement um at paris i mean everyone i think hoped that that was going to come at copenhagen in 2009 um you know but that that is a seismically complicated you know challenge which requires us to forego benefits and that's the fundamental problem here which actually is similar to the challenge of ai and synthetic biology i mean these are fundamentally omni use technologies they're they're general which means that they are valuable for many many different types of application and so you know the commercial incentive the social incentive to address tough social problems you know, these are going to, not to mention the military incentive, these are going to drive forward development at like a breathtaking pace. And so 
what I frame in the book as as the greatest dilemma that you know we face this century is principally pivoted around that question. It's like how do you hold back something which is on the face of it so valuable? I mean, this really is going to be the most productive decade in the history of our species if we can get this right. I, I truly believe that over the next three to four decades, we're headed towards radical abundance. There is no reason why we can't grab. Mm all of the benefits here whilst whilst mitigating the downsides. Now you're sounding, Mustafa, like a utopian. Do we have to hold our nose, though, on this incentivization? You, you argued in an interesting way that the Turing test, which, of course, was the test to see whether computers could sound like humans or be as convincing as humans, we couldn't tell the difference, that the new Turing test should see if AI can make a million dollars. Some people might think that rather crap and commercial, uh, especially the anti-capitalists among us. Uh, how far can this incentivization go? Is it? Do you think bringing out greed in a in an in a Ayn Randian sense can result in social good? Well, the the purpose of the modern Turing test is to measure what an AI can do, not what it can say. Right. What it can say doesn't necessarily correlate with intelligence, but capabilities, practical creation of real things in the real world or the use of digital tools, you know, that that's something that we really can measure. And, you know, in o over the history of humanity, we have invented a very straightforward and very objective way of measuring value. Right. It doesn't capture everything, but it's clearly the most practical way. And that, that is via dollars. If somebody is prepared to pay for it, it in, a, in an open market, it must have you know some value. And so the purpose of the modern Turing test wasn't to make a million dollars. It was to provide a very clear, measurable um, indication of whether an AI system had learned the ability to invent a new product from scratch to get that manufactured by commissioning it, you know, uh, in 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 a in a factory, negotiate over the the blueprints of the product, um, and then actually get it drop shipped and you know market uh, and 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 sell the the new product, right, and actually generate a profit from that. So you know that that's a very complicated series of actions, um, which is you know quite simply summed up in the measure of the of, of dollars. So, you know, look, I, I think that we have to be pragmatic. I mean, you know, profit and dollars have driven immense progress in our world. And it's an amazing engine of, of, of productivity. And I think that once again, this isn't just about being optimistic or pessimistic, utopian or dystopian. It's about just taking a cold, hard look at the facts, identifying the risks and starting to focus on, you know, trying to plug those potential holes and, and mitigate those downsides. And I think that's where the conversation has got to move to next. Most of one of the striking things about the last 30 years, the, the world of big tech, and these dramatic changes is on the one hand, you've got the appearance of this new aristocracy, guys like you and new centers of power and wealth like Palo Alto, where you live. And on the other hand, everyone else seems to have stepped, stood still more and more inequality. Uh, in the coming wave and in your analysis, do you address that? Are there ways yeah. in which you think uh, a post-nation state world might be able to address this growing inequality, which is, of course, having such problematic, corrosive political and cultural consequences? 
Yeah, I I mean, I think that on the inequality front, I'm a big believer in taxation and redistribution. And I think that we're going to have to get more and more comfortable with um, corporate taxes going up significantly over the next few decades. You know, right now, labor in the US is taxed at about on average 25%, whereas software is only taxed at 5%. And naturally, you know, you tax the things that you want to add friction to, to go slower or to get more costly. Um, and you, you know, reduce taxes on the things that, you know, you know, you want to be protected. And so, you know, taxation isn't just about redistribution of the dollars. It's a political decision that we can use to throttle the rate of change, right? The time is going to come, and, and, and I think we're fast approaching it, where we're going to want to tax capital much more than labor because we want there to be time for people to be able to retrain and adapt and you know improve their skills and continue to compete in the market because you know right now we're turning intelligence into capital right and and so it's going to have all the characteristics of capital which is that it can be you know hoarded and it will compound faster than anything else Right. So so if we want to avoid the ampli you know, the amplification of that inequality, the acceleration of the process that's already been underway for 40 years, where there's been stagnant wages for the bottom 60 percent of people in the US for four decades, then we're going to have to address taxation. And I, I think that we need to lean into that with much more radical proposals than we've got here. And that's going to pale into insignificance to the kind of thing that we're going to have to do in the next four decades. In 30 or 40 years time, it's quite likely that you know, we're going to have machines that do pretty much all tasks more efficiently than humans, apart from maybe the top 10% of complex tasks. So that's going to produce radical abundance. It really is going to produce way, way, way more for much, much, much cheaper. The question is, how do we create, you know, the political decision-making process to tax and redistribute that? And for me personally, my contribution to that is to generate the value and create a business that is open-minded and you know pro-social and leans into these kinds of considerations. That's why we created Inflection as a public benefit corporation. What's a public benefit corporation? A public benefit corporation is one where we have a legal obligation to make decisions that give equal weight to returns to shareholders as to the consequences of people that are not our customers, so the wider stakeholders. So we're trying to internalize the externalities to some extent, right, in our decision-making process. And that's in the, the that's a legal obligation of our of our commercial charter, of our company charter, and it's the obligation of our board of directors. And um, one of your co-founders is, of course, Reid Hoffman. He's been on the yep. show a few times. I've known him for many years. Um, do you represent, do you think, Guys like you and Hoffman, uh, a different kind of Silicon Valley from Hoffman's old friend at Stanford, Teal and Musk and, and some of these other characters. We did a show yesterday with Jonathan Taplin, who has a new book out su suggesting that Teal and uh, Musk and Zuckerberg and, um, and Andreessen are ruining the world, these multi-billionaires. So uh, are you an alternative? I'm not sure if you're a billionaire, but you're a wealthy man. Yeah, look, I mean, my goal has never been to make money. I, you know, the, 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 the making money is, is, the, is the least interesting. They all say that, most do. Though, everybody, and, and I believe <laughs> it. I mean, you know, when you're that rich, it doesn't matter. Well, you know, 
the, the, the second part of my goal has also, you know, been to, you know, in, in, is to defend the public interest and, you know, build the nation state. I mean, if anything, my book is a, a love letter to the nation state. It's saying like, now is the time for us to, you know, strengthen it and enhance it in every possible way. Whereas I think some of those people that you've listed, their goal is explicitly to tear down the nation state. They think the nation state is the problem. You know, they think that we would be far better off if we only had the nation state take responsibility for the lightest form of security and that everyone else could establish their own independent libertarian enclaves. I think this is completely insane. And I also think that it's highly unlikely, given what we're about to go through. Like we thankfully have the democratic process and people are going to feel the increasing pinch of this, this new wave. And, and that pressure is going to drive the political process in very fundamentally new ways. We've started to see the tip of the iceberg of that in LA with the writer's strike, which is still ongoing. Yeah, John uh, Taplin talked about that yesterday. And his argument, when we talked about it, was you still need to pay those writers half a million dollars rather than the 30, 40,000 that uh, AI is reducing the price to. And I'm not actually convinced that. Let, Let's end, Mustafa. There's so much to talk about here. You'll have to come back on the show. But um, let's end with some more concrete ways in which, to, to, to quote you, we can strengthen the nation state with this coming wave of new technologies, particularly AI and synthetic biology. You're, you're slightly ambivalent on regulation. You talk about much more aggressive taxes on corporations. What, what other ways are you suggesting in your plans for the coming wave that we can strengthen the nation state rather than undermine it in this well, new in this new age of radically disruptive technologies i mean two high level things the first is that we have to put nation states in charge of auditing and scrutinizing the pace of development of these technologies um, and that means that those who are building the technologies, myself included, have to proactively make available um, code access to, uh, you know, democratic governments to provide verification of the state of our current progress and the trajectory mm. that we're on. And the other piece of that is that... Well, that sounds rather regulatory to me. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it will be regulatory, but it will also be pre-regulatory. So we've actually already signed up to do this in the voluntary commitments that uh, at, at the White House. So we've, I visited with President Biden. Does Biden, can, can old Joe Biden, can he, can he, can he understand your codes? <laughs> well, it's not going to be Joe doing the audits, thankfully. Um, but does but, he have guys around him? I mean, they're all ex-Google people around him. Can we trust them? Can we trust all of you together? Yeah, I mean, I think more than ever, I don't know that it is old Google people, but yeah, well, I mean, Facebook, I, I, a lot of, you know, Amazon, Apple, all old tech people. End but up here's the DC. thing, right? I totally agree with the revolving door issue. It is a fundamental risk to the future of the nation state, and it has long been a problem. But here's the flip side. We live in a free labor market, which means that if you're going to go off and pay people a million dollars in the private sector, then you have to figure out a mechanism by which the overwhelming incentive isn't for somebody in public service to you know, do 10 years and then go and spend the rest of their career earning lots of money in the private sector. So we, we, we are allergic in you know, the, the UK particularly, but also in Europe and the US, to paying public servants what they deserve. And that means that we're going to have to increase that. Like every yeah, single yeah, cabinet. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. 
especially in America where public servants don't get any love or respect. So uh, you talked about two big issues. On the one hand, a kind of pre-regulatory regime where big tech has to show its codes to government before it proceeds, opening the kimono. What else? What's the other one? Well, so the other thing that we have to do is to make sure that, you know, the, the cabinet itself has a minister for technology and for AI, right? This needs to be a first class citizen in the decision making process, um, you know, whether it's a, a CTO or or some other kind of, you know, senior technical expert that is, you know, alongside world leaders making significant decisions about, you know, having technology um, in in-house, right? So this is the other component, which is that governments have become, and, and you know, governments have become used to commissioning technology services. And, you know, you can't really control something that you fundamentally commission. And if you do that for decades, you lose the institutional muscle for actually understanding the detail of what you're commissioning. And so to really, you know, have the power to control something and to contain something, you have to have the technical expertise inside, like on the home team, as well as commissioning services. I'm not saying don't use cloud. No, but but we've, we've had talk and I think we've even had government CTOs. They've never made any difference. What kind of fair? It's not the quality of the individual. It's their power within the cabinet, within the administration. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we—I don't think we've ever had CTOs in the UK government, or, or you know, in in much of Europe. And I and I think what I'm arguing is that now is the time to invest significantly in having technical expertise on the government side. I mean, that seems to me just a, a, a an absolute minimum. Well, much to discuss. I, I think we're going to have to get you back on, Mustafa, because there's so many more questions. But congratulations on the new book. It's out. It's out next week in the US. I think you're going to New York t- uh, to launch, and then you're going to be in the UK in the middle of um, middle of September for the UK launch. It's on the long list. I expect to get on the short list of the FT. So we'll have you back on the show. Best of luck. I, I've avoided making any jokes about King Canute in this coming wave, but you're certainly very brave in addressing the coming wave. Mustafa Solomon, honored to have you on the show, and we'll definitely have you back in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Appreciate it.